All right, let's go right into the word today. Turn with me, please, in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we begin reading down at verse 13, where the Bible says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts, in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. In all manner, conversations in Old English word, archaic word means behavior. In everything that you behave, be holy. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning, right, your pilgrimage, here in fear, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain, again, conversation, which means your vain manner of life. You can see this is speaking specifically to Jews. By tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who truly or verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. The title of the message is very simple. It's taken from the 16th verse of 1 Peter chapter 1. Be ye holy. And I want to point out, so I don't neglect it later, forget it. Here, as we would see also in Leviticus chapter 11, and I'm going to read to you also from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But the only reason that the Lord gives us here to be holy, there's more than one reason, but the primary reason, he says, be holy because I'm holy. Be holy because I'm holy. And so that's the title of the message. Be ye holy. Some of you will be familiar with the author, once pastor, A.W. Tozer. He's written several books one of which is called The Knowledge of the Holy. I want to bring something to your attention here that's very, very critical to understand. Let me just read right from the preface of his book, Knowledge of the Holy. He writes these words before he gets into the subject. The message of this book does not grow out of these times, but it is appropriate to them. And I want you to know that this was written in 1961. I was seven years old. Just going into the first grade, I was in the first grade, and some of you here sitting here weren't even alive. He wrote this in 1961. He said, the message of this book was not written because of the times we live in, but it's appropriate to the times in which we live. It is called forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. And keeping in mind, he's writing in 1961. It's called forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. 
the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. Now just keeping in mind, this is 1961. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. He goes on to write further in the book these words. It is my opinion that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. All the problems of heaven and earth, though they were to confront us together and at once, would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God, that he is, what he is like, and what we as moral beings must do about him. Highly recommended to read Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy. But along with this, I remind you, this was written when I was in grade school, first grade. And many of us of my generation look back on those days as being innocent and in many ways pleasant. In those days, in 1961, we saw the sun set over the horizon on the blue laws that have been on the books since the 1600s here in America. Stores everywhere were closed, couldn't buy gas. The honor, reverence paid to the Christian Sabbath was just, just leaving the scene when I grew up. Now, it's pretty much gone altogether. I was thinking about this, I was just going through it in my mind, I was thinking about the Ten Commandments, and that the Fourth Commandment is the only one that says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Not everything's implied the holiness of God, all the commandments, but that one specifically says, keep it holy. Maybe on your Bible, as I've reminded you from time to time here, on the binding of mind, it doesn't say Bible, it says holy Bible. And what Tozer was writing about, as he said, has been going on for many years, he was really echoing the words of men such as Lewis Berry Schaefer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote an eight-volume work on systematic theology. And in his introduction or his preface, he talks about the fact that these books are disappearing. That's 1947. These books on systematic theology were disappearing from pastor's libraries. That you could hardly go into a pastor's library anymore and find books on systematic theology. But Schaefer, on the other hand, was only echoing the words of theologians like B.B. Warfield and others that was going back into the 19th century, to the 1800s, as these things were beginning to disappear. By the time we came into the Lord, so much had already been gone, so much had already been erased. And it may, well, not may, it does explain why, when you say to somebody, read the Bible, and they actually read it, they're somewhat stunned by the things that they read in it. Not just the Old Testament, the wars and other things, but in the New Testament. I believe that the cognitive abilities of many Christians, 
particularly American Christians or Christians in the Western world, England and other places, they skip right past verses like this. I mean, they read it. They may even read it out loud. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye. Now, this is the advantage of our King James Bible. The modern translation has only put you, Y-O-U, and we don't know if it's singular or plural, but in the Jacobian English of the King James Bible, it retains words like ye. Ye is plural. Be ye holy. That means everybody. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And as I said to you last week and the week before when we were talking about the doctrine of hell and the doctrine of the cross, what sin is and all of these things, this is the gospel. Be ye holy, for I am holy. We have been in a continual apostasy for a long time, before, not only before you were born and I was born, but before your parents, grandparents, and even the great-grandparents. It's been a continuous slide, and I won't go through all of that today of how it developed, but it developed. And so the word of God has been emaciated, it's been truncated, it's been eviscerated. That even when you're reading the words, it seems to bypass us. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so we need to come to an appreciation of what this is actually saying. Having done for a couple of weeks, explained rather for a couple of weeks, the doctrine of hell. Jesus said it exists. I don't think there's a more horrible thought that anyone can think on this planet than that one there. Now, there's a place, which I went through the statistics with you on our Wednesday night Bible study of how many people are slipping into eternity every minute. Well, 7,000, and by the time I finish this message, will be in eternity. Jesus didn't say there was a lot of ways to get to heaven, a lot of ways to see God. He said, there's only one, and I'm the way. And uh, if I can phrase it this way, that's what we're stuck with. I don't mean that we're stuck with it, but that's, I think, a good way just to communicate. We can't go beyond Jesus' words. We can't contradict him. We can't say, well, you're, Jesus was wrong on that point. He's God come in the flesh. He's telling us the truth. In any case, as you read the word prayerfully and you apply it to your life, it becomes more and more alive. And I'm going to suggest to you that you're going to see things that you've read a thousand times and all of a sudden it's like you never saw it before. Be, all of you here, holy, because God says, I am holy. Let me define the word for you. It's a pretty simple word. And in respect to spirituality, it means free from carnality. It means we're free from these so-called lusts of the flesh. If you look back here, we are told here at the beginning of where I started in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind, that's our thinking, be sober, sober in thinking, but it's also sobriety and everything else as well. And hope to the end is a long distance grace going on here. To the grace that shall be brought to you as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. In other words, what we used to be is not what we are now. What we used to be, we're not supposed to go back and repeat and do it again. And there are many, many teachings out there today that flatly contradict what this book says. We sin, we know that. But the practice of sin is different than falling into it by default, let's say, because the will got weak or whatever. The practice of sin is strictly forbidden in the Bible. Free from carnality, free from the sinful propensities of the flesh. It also means free from every fault. And we do read this in the Bible clean. Well, I think that one communicates probably best, right? You know what it's like to be dirty. You know what it's like to be clean. 
We are told to be cleansed by the washing of water by the word of God. Now I'm going to say this to you and I'm going to submit this to you as something I firmly believe. As you know, I do a daily show, which hasn't been daily lately, but I'll be back there soon, on anxiety and depression. I try to you know, help people that are suffering from anxieties and depressions and so on. But I, I can tell you this here, this is my firm conviction. The greatest antidote against anxiety is holiness. Holiness takes the emphasis off of yourself, places it on God, and places it on one another. Love your neighbor. Now, you may not understand that, and I'm not going to take the time today to explain to you how I have arrived at that conclusion, having learned this subject very thoroughly, anxiety and depression I'm referring to. But let me just give you one tidbit. If you're living a holy life, one thing is not working against you, and that's your conscience. You can put your head on the pillow at night no matter what. Even when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, but... Because we've put away the practice of sin, you can put your head on the pillow at night knowing that you've done your best today to serve God and to be holy and to live holy. You're clean. <clears throat> at present, I'm unconcerned. I often tell people, other pastors and people, Christian people, about you know, what people say, what people think. And my term is this. I am supernaturally indifferent to what people think or say about me when it's not deserved, I meant. And if they give me praise, well, it goes to Calvary. And if they give me criticism, it still goes to God. Either way, what I am, I am by the grace of God. So I give that to God. The glory goes to God. And if people say, well, we don't care for you, then that goes to God too to help me. Either way, it goes to God. Living a holy life is going to keep your conscience clear. Letting the word of God into your mind, reading it, memorizing, meditating, obeying it, above all, obeying it, will cleanse you from delusions. Sin is what brings delusions, delusional thinking. Paranoia. If you know that God controls, I mean, you truly know it, not that you've heard it. Oh, I believe that. No, no, no. If you really, really, really believe that God is in control of the universe and he's working out his plan, things are upsetting and we have much to pray for. I'm telling you, every day I get prayer requests, every single day. And they're serious ones, serious ones. Yet I can lie in a calm repose because I know God's in control. And at any moment, he could change the whole thing if he wanted to. Yes. Just speak the word. But he has something in mind, and I trust in that. This is the benefits, among many, we'll read a few in just a minute, of a holy life. Let me go here to a little more defining of the word holiness. It says, of things which on account of some connection with God. Now, don't raise your hand, but do you have a connection with God? Oh, yes, I have a connection with God. Then be holy. Because he's holy. Have some connection with God. Possess a certain distinction. And claim to reverence. As places sacred. For instance a place sacred to God. Which are not to be profaned. Now we're not talking about places for the moment. We're talking about people. Persons. That are not to be profaned. He says know ye not that ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where is the temple today? God says ye are the temple. For I will put my law in your heart, and I will walk in you. You will be my people. I will be your God. We read this just the other night. Come out from among them. Be separate. If you're walking with God and you're putting this to practice, you won't have to so much even mention to people what you're doing. They will notice it. They will notice that while they're speaking of some profane thing, you're not. Now again, having been in a men's locker room most all of my life, and I still am, I have many conversations with people, but then if it goes into some profane things, I just keep silent. I just turn my head away. Sometimes I walk away. 
Aren't you concerned what they think about you? I just told you, I'm supernaturally indifferent. If they ask me why you're walking away, you say, I don't want to listen to that. And I'm not taking part in that. I'll talk about other things, sports, or how'd your workout go, or whatever. I like to fool around, I like to tease, I like the people. Generally speaking, I like people. But I'm not taking part in their profane conversations. And buckle up for this one, including their political ones. Amen. But pastor, they're on your side. Not on my side, unless you're in this book. I was in the union once. They kept addressing us as brothers and brothers and brothers. Says, Excuse me, I'm not your brother. I'm here because I pay dues and you protect some of my interest in this union. But the only brothers and sisters I have is the one who pay attention to what's in this book. You say, are you kind of hard? Well, I'm not really, man. The preaching makes it harder sounding than I actually deliver it with people. Just want to make things clear, that's all. Clean. There's something about a shower. I mean, your skin is the largest organ in the body. And I found many times, you know, a little difficulty here, a little difficulty there, and take a shower, and all the difficulty goes away because, you know, the skin's pores are blocked or whatever. And the Word of God is to wash us in such a way. I mean, you understand this, but let me just say it. The more you read the Bible, the more you're going to see the exceptional filth that's in our world. Coming through that television set, video games, unbelievable, unbelievable. Clean. Antonyms, blasphemous, desecrating, irreverent, profanatory, profane, sacrilegious, non-religious, secular, unspiritual, worldly, backsliding, unfaithful, evil, immoral, iniquitous, miscreant, sinful. These are all antonyms to the word holy. That's from Webster's. But I want to share with you something that many of us grew up with this idea of a holy man, a holy woman. And this is from Webster's Dictionary. Let me just read this to you. It's an example of the word holy. And the only one that the dictionary that I possess was the only one given there. It's not the original Noah's Webster's Dictionary, but it's Webster's. Listen to this. Holiness is showing a devotion to God and to a life of virtue. Here's the example. The holy monk spent many hours on his knees in prayer. Now, you see, this is problematic. I'll tell you why. Because we relegate holiness to somebody else inside the church, but not to ourselves. And I will say this to you. You are to be communing with God all the day long. And much of that is going to be for the American sitting, maybe not walking. But see, the idea is that there's holy people in monasteries and there's holy people in certain orders, such as we have in Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox branches. These are holy people. These are people who have devoted their life to God, while the rest of us, well, we're just sort of, you know, Christians. And that's not what this Bible is saying. This Bible is saying, be all of you holy. It doesn't mean you need to spend hours on your knees or do some of the things that you've read about with the saints, because almost in every epistle, the average Christian, the average Christian is addressed as a saint. You see, some of us grew up comparing ourselves to these so-called saints who were actually voted in by a committee. And when you read anybody's biography, you really don't know how much of that is really true. You just don't know. And it created in many of us a wrong concept the holy men and the holy women are over here and they belong to a certain order by a certain name of a certain founder and they're holy. But for us over here, well, we're not saints. We often use that expression. Well, I'm no saint. You profess Christ? He calls you a saint. Old and New Testaments. But you have to eradicate from your mind this special designation to particular people and apply it to the entire church. Be all of you holy, for I am holy. It obligates us to a life, really a change of character that we get when we're born again. 
This is what it means to be born again. You've had a change of spirit. You've had a change of character. You were a thief, but no longer. You were an adulterer, not anymore. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Twice, I believe it's twice here in our Bible, the word Christian is used. I forget how many times the word saint is used, but it's always used as a designation of a Christian. Now, it may seem odd to you to refer to yourself as a saint. I remember when I first came into a church that preached the gospel, one of the elders of the church always used that word. Now, saints, listen to me. Now, saints, you know. And through my bringing up, that seems so odd. Saints, I don't see any saints in here. And there's not even a statue of one. <laughs> but that's the misleading thing. A saint who has been voted in, then someone carves out a statue, and then they're different than us. And the Bible says, no, be all of you holy. No one's going to be building a statue of you, but then again, that's not what you want anyway, lest we become idolaters. Be ye holy because I am holy. Let me say something to you that's related. I think this is starting to wear away as well. But the one thing that I admire in some of the Eastern cultures is a sense of Honoring your family, even your ancestors. I don't mean ancestral worship. I mean just honoring the family. I've dishonored my family. Here in America, we don't have that. I think it may be for practical purposes to have the government print off stickers for everyone who will have one and put it on their bumper and just simply says, it's all about me. I didn't ruin anybody's life. That's not true. I read a thing, and I'm going to say it. I read a thing from someone who had an addiction problem. And it started off by saying, you know, if you've never been addicted, you have no right responding to this. And I so wanted to respond to this. I really did. What I want to write to these individuals is that, number one, you don't know what it's like to live with a drug addict. You don't know what it's like to have to bury them, to have to counsel them. When they're stealing from your house and stealing from their mother, how the nerve are some of these narcissistic individuals? See, that's the very problem that puts you on drugs. You think no one has a right to tell you. Oh, you don't know what it's like. Well, let me tell you something. You know, some of you know my background. There's very few people that know the things that I've been through. And how did I overcome them? Through the blood of the Lamb and the word of my testimony. And I'm not going to tell anybody, you have no right to speak into my life because you don't know what I've been through. That's the same narcissistic, self-centered stuff that we have today that we need to get rid of. Amen. I so wanted to respond to that, but I'm not going to. It's just It's below me. This is your problem. Self-pity, self-blames. You don't know what it's like. I think, actually, it extends to many, many people in America. It's all about me. I don't come here for you and the word pastor. I come here because I like whatever they like. People are changing church fellowships like they change. In fact, I got shoes that are older than some people's membership in their local church. I really do. I truly do. They're here, then they're not here, then they're here, then they're not here, then they're here, then they're not there. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But for me, I just like the book and prayer, the Bible and prayer. I like it plain. I used to put a little juice in my water, give it a little taste. Then I said, well, this is sugar, so I don't want that. So it's just water, nothing to make it taste good, just water. Water's not supposed to have taste. This Bible washes us. And here it tells us, be holy. Throughout the whole book, the message, even when it's not as direct as this here, is telling you to be holy because the one who wrote it is holy. Leviticus 11.44 for I am the Lord your God, ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Hebrews 12, 14, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which 
No man shall see the Lord. Leviticus 19.2 Speak unto the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Leviticus 20 verse 7 Sanctify yourselves therefore and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. And this verse interestingly came up in our Bible study related to what we were speaking about on Wednesday. It's Amos 3.3 and it has great relevance to this message. How can two walk together except they be agreed? How can you walk with God except you're in agreement with God? In the matter of speaking, God says, now be holy, and we shake hands on it. That's just an illustration. And we shake hands on it and say, amen, okay, it's a deal. You want to come to the cross and be washed by the blood, you want to have the walk that goes with it afterwards. Otherwise, it's just a vain claim. The blood this, the blood that. But the blood means nothing if we call him Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. It's just a claim. It's just quoting a scripture verse, which even the devil himself can do that. The devil quotes scriptures. We want to make sure we're in practice of these scriptures. And you have to be agreed with the law. Back to the Lord. Back to Tozer. He wrote again in his book, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems, temporary, for he sees at once that these have to do with matters which are at most cannot concern him for very long. But even if the multiple burdens of time may be lifted from him, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the woes of the world piled one upon another, the mighty burden of his obligation to God. It includes an instant and lifelong duty to love God with every power of mind and soul, to obey him perfectly, and to worship him acceptably. And when the man's laboring conscience tells him that he's done none of these things, but has from a childhood been guilty of foul revolt against the majesty in the heavens, the inner pressure of self-accusation may become too heavy to bear. We've been there. Then Tozer writes this, the gospel can lift this destroying burden from the mind, give beauty for ashes, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And there you go, by the way, for depression. When you really come to see what sin has done to this entire planet, including our physical bodies and our minds, he gives us beauty for ashes and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. When a song leader or Pastor Ray or somebody who's leading from the pulpit says, come on, lift up your hands. It is to your benefit, not God's. God has an innumerable host of angels praising him. God needs nothing. He says, praise for it will lift the spirit of heaviness. And it does. It does. Tozer went on to say, but unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to the man. And until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. Now, again, that's 1961. Imagine if Tozer could write a book today, 60 years later, almost 60 years later, and what that book would be like when he was writing when I was seven years old. And others before him, Lewis Berry Schaefer, 1947, and so on. We need a view of God that's anchored right here in the Bible. A view that's so high that the mind cannot conceive of this holy God. Now, here's what I want to say to you. I read to you from Webster's Dictionary, the holy monk spent hours on his knees. And we can go through all these type of examples. But if you go to a church that is a holiness church, and this is an observation, not necessarily a statistic, 
And I've been around this thing for a long, long time. Keep that in mind. My observation was they seemed to be some of the most unhappy people I've ever met. I remember seeing a woman, I won't go through her denomination, but you could see the bitterness on her face. And it was one of those really extreme holiness groups. You see the bitterness, the unhappiness, because you can read a person's countenance, you know, what's going on inside. And I said to myself, what an incredibly poor advertisement for Christ. Now, I'm not advocating giddiness and silliness, but the misconception, one that no doubt comes from Satan or just from our own sinful hearts, is that if I live a holy life, oh, how restrictive it's going to be. No doubt there's going to be restrictions. Okay. But what it produces, I guess I could say it this way, that Satan does not want you to see is what I'm about to read to you. A true holy life produces this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. You find yourself... Even people that you don't care for or they have offended you or whatever, as you grow in the spirit, you find yourself really, truly pitying them. I don't mean that in a condescending way either. I mean, you start to really be fearful for them. I know ministers that I fear for, for what they've done to other people. And there was a time I was exceptionally angry with them. And as time has gone on, I'm afraid for them. I'm afraid for them. Because the fruit of holiness, the fruit of the spirit, remember it's Holy Spirit? The fruit of the spirit is love. And the second one mentioned is joy. You live a holy life, you're going to become, I'm not going to say you're likely to become, you will become more joyful. Even in the midst of all that's going on around us, and doesn't mean that we're superficial about people's sufferings and real tragedies, that leads us to prayer and to do something, try to do something and help people. But there's joy. And then there's long-suffering, a lot of patience, and there's gentleness, and there's goodness, and there's more faith, more meekness, and temperance, which is self-control. I could really talk about this subject here, of the so-called mental illnesses, and on and on. But the truth of it is, even people who have been diagnosed with mental illness, mental health problems, can control this. And I could prove it. Not from Christian resources, but from secular ones. I've been studying it for 50 years. There is no such thing as an uncontrollable temper, just tempers that are not controlled. Want me to prove it to you real quick? little rabbit trail. You're having this really knocked down, drawn out, knuckle busting fight with your spouse. The doorbell rings. It's a neighbor. Oh, hi, hi. All of a sudden, what happened to the uncontrolled? You're out of control. See, if you had a fever and you had that incident with your spouse, when you went to the door, you still have the fever. They don't go away. But you can change like that when it's this one. They go right go back because it's in the inner man. It's in the spirit. It's in the mind. No such thing as an uncontrollable temper, just tempers that go uncontrolled. Your life is not out of control. You just are not under the control of God's Holy Spirit. And when you are, the fruit that it produces is good. The fear of the Lord is good. Everything associated with it is good. Long life. A song leader read it in Psalm 91. With long life will I satisfy thee, and the number of thy days I will fulfill. Fear of the Lord is clean. Fear of the Lord, you know, all these good things. The devil usurped the idea of a holy life and turned it into something that has everything to do with the way you wear your hair and your clothes and all that stuff. And some have accepted that. You know, I think if you live a holy life, you're going to be concerned about your appearance. I really do. Yet, it's not specifically related to the flesh at all, but to the spirit. And you'll find that, well, for me at least, you know, when the birds sing... In the morning, they sing pretty early. I just enjoy hearing them sing. I think about all the troubles going on on this planet. 
And there's the bird just singing to the glory of God. I noticed the pattern in one bird. He puts out three little, they're almost eighth notes. And then he goes into a few quarter notes. And it just, I'm amazed at the holiness of God that we can see, let's say, in nature or in his universe. It's in order. It's orderly. Someone just told me yesterday, a woman I had just met for the first time, that she believed that you know, the answer to a lot of our problems concerning anxiety and so on is simplicity, simplicity of mind. I said, I agree. We have so much noise. I just count it as noise. As I told you, I try to do research on the internet. Ads keep popping up. I had to physically close them. Many times, I just get off that website altogether. It's Christian, off. I just get off. It just doesn't belong there. I'm trying to research on God and buy this. And you want to sign up for that and subscribe? I got to keep, I just get off. It's constant input. It's making us nervous. It's making us depressed and all of these things. But the holiness of God is pure. So he tells us to put away these things. In the local congregation, he tells us to be kind and compassionate towards each other. Who's that good for? God? No, it's good for you. This has got to be an oasis. We all have to get to the place, if you're not all there now, say, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said, hey, we're going to have a fellowship. I see people whisking out the door. I don't know what they're thinking. If there was ever a time that we need, not, not only God, but we need each other, this is the time. People can't figure out why they're anxious. And again, this is a subject I've studied for 50 years, longer than I've been a Christian. The constant rushing around, the constant looking at the watch, constantly battling that clock. Maybe it's time just to say, you know what? I do this sometimes when I'm on vacation. I'm not even taking my watch with me. What time is it? I don't know. I'm not suggesting you can do that all week long. You've got responsibilities, but the holiness of God in your life will produce this fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. And when that's present, then God's people come together. It is a little slice of heaven on earth. And I'm telling you how I feel. I look forward to this slice every week. I truly do. I go to bed saying, oh, good. (laughs) Get to go to church tomorrow. And not just because I like preaching and teaching. It's just that I get to be here. And so we are called to be saints. I preached a series on this a year or two ago. I want to read you one verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. You are called to be a saint. We must distance ourselves from those early teachings in some of the churches we went to where special people were saints and you were just, what were you? We are all called to be saints. Every single one of us. And the committee that voted you in was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want to look at this word sanctified because it's really identical to the word holy, separate from profane things, dedicated to God. We have got to see ourselves as the scripture says we are. We are not a part of a special society. We're just simply the church. I left my denomination 16 years ago. It was the second best decision I ever made. My first was receiving Christ. Get out from all the cumbersome things that were being put more and more upon the ministry that I said to myself, this is exactly how I was raised as a kid, imposing things not to mention other considerations, illegalities and immoralities or whatever. And I designed this church here to operate very simply, simple. We meet, we pray, we sing, 
Uh, of course, we need finances to run the ministry. And then we go home. Remember I've told you this? This is a lot of years of experience speaking, please. If you have any doubt at all that Satan exists, let me call for a church business meeting. And it will remove all doubt from your mind. I used to get a knot in my stomach when we had a congregational form of government because I knew it was going to be argumentations. I told you the incident I saw where two elders of the church, this wasn't the one that I was pastoring, just cut the pastor down to ribbons there in front of her, yelling at him. And many, many people can testify, pastors especially, can testify of business meetings that have typically gone that way, or board meetings. Because I'm being honest with you now, because many of the people who fill these positions in our churches are not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're not following the Word of God. They don't come prepared to live in brotherly love and so on and so forth. That's why we have the problems. That's what Tozer was writing about. Because we have, we have such a low view of God. Let's face it. Bob Dylan wrote about it in 1979 in his album, Slow Train Coming. And others have made mention of it. If you really think it through, listen to some of the... Well, I wouldn't even suggest you listen to some of these messages out there. But let me just give it to you. See, without, in, in a very subtle way, we have gone from becoming the servant of God, the Most High, to Him becoming our servant. And you can find this in so many types of teachings. We speak, God just moves. I mean, it's blasphemous. It's blasphemous. This is what Toza was writing about in 1961. Others were writing about it even before that. We have, we have diminished the knowledge of the holy, the fact that God is holy, and the fact that God obligates every single one of you, starting with the preacher, to be holy for one specific reason, because he is holy. Amen. Let me say something to you that comes to my mind. Very few preachers would debate the fact that Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers ever. He was called the crowned prince of preachers. Theologian, he was unsurpassed. As a speaker, he was beyond eloquent. Yet he had a habit of smoking cigars. And I think I've told you this before. When people go to his website, the one thing they want to know more than anything else about his theology or his speech is his cigars. Now the reason I mention that is because, see, we're forbidden in the Bible to add to it. And when we start, and churches start to add these things to the Bible, it has become extra biblical, which God said, don't add to it. Now, we can't subtract from it either. Can't subtract from it. Can't add to it because God is holy. And he says, I've made my, let me use this phrase, I've made my word perfect. The life that comes in the inner man is challenging enough. I die daily to be crucified with Christ is challenging enough. Go to the Sermon on the Mount and just start with, Love your enemies. After that, you're going to need a cigar. <laughs> now, I'm not advocating smoking. I'm just simply saying that living for the Lord is difficult enough without people piling on. The Pharisees did and hundreds and hundreds of things so that Jesus would say, and then later Peter would say this. He said, we couldn't bear this. There were so many rules and so many restrictions and so many things. And then Jesus comes along, and here it is, holiness. And he says, come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. He didn't say, come to me, all ye that are heavy laden. I'm going to make your burden even heavier, because you're going to have to live holy. And again, if your concept of holy means that you've got to spend three, four, five hours on your knees, laying in swamps. We've read these stories, right? Oh, he was holy. He laid in the swamp. I've read these, I've read these stories. Saint so-and-so. 
He says to us to walk in his law, to walk in his love. I will submit to you that one of the most difficult things for the average Christian to do is simply love another Christian. I told you this, and I'm telling you again. I am, well, let me say it this way. After 35 years of being in this city, I've made up my mind just to concentrate on my work right here. Because I've tried this let's get together thing, and try to get lunch at my house, invite the pastors. You know how many pastors showed up in the city? Zero. Zero. I said, that's it. I'm all done. I got to do what I've got to do. You know, that's not that I'm against the pastors around me. I'm not. And if they need help, one did one day, I'm there. And I have lunch with another. So I'm fine with that. But I'm not wasting time trying to do a work that maybe the Holy Spirit is himself not doing. To live for God. We cannot walk together unless we're agreed that this is the word of God. Why am I smiling? Because if you disagree long enough and give me a hard time, I'm going to give you an invitation. As I have on occasions. Find another place to go. Because you're not going to cause problems here. When we come here, we want this to be an oasis. We want this to be a place where you leave refreshed. Where you leave clean. Cleansed. And so on. You know, we pray for the sick here and anointed with oil where you can go out and say, I am healed by his stripes, and so on. We want this to be a place of strength, and we cannot do that unless we are agreed. We can't walk together except we be agreed. Now, I know most everybody here for quite a long time, at least for a while, so I know that we're in agreement. I'm happy for that. You know, I brag about you people. Not all of you, but I brag about you. (laughs) And I often tell people, they say, well, you know, you you know how old I am. I'm not as old as Mario, but I'm, I'm, I'm old. <laughs> I often tell people, they say, well, pastor, you know, your age now is getting to be too much. I say, the church don't give me any problems. My problems are all out there. It's the truth. But that's what we want. Let me just say this to you. Our motive for a holy life. I'll leave it as simple as it is right there in the verse. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Okay, with a practical application. That means that there's some things we have to put away. There's also some things we have to put on. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God. Helmet of salvation. Jesus says you're saved, you're saved. Jesus says that hell is hell. Jesus said you're saved, you're saved. Breastplate of righteousness, right? We're living right. We have a shield to quench the fiery darts. We have a sword to fight back. It is written... Our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, so we should live at peace with all men as much as we can. Can't live at peace with everybody, but as much as we can to live at peace with people. And we put on these things, and then there's others. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. We have to put off certain company that we're in that are constantly pulling us down into a bad place. Be careful what you see. Be careful what you hear. Let me leave you with this very imposing thought. I don't know if there's a verse that is more engaging when Jesus said, I tell you, a man shall give an account for every idle word. When I think of that, every idle word, and then it's my memory starts playing back words that come out of my mouth that day, the day before, a week, over the years. It just brings me into a sobriety. Not an anxiety, but a sobriety of watching what comes out of your mouth. And take it from there. Be ye holy. Why, God? Because I'm holy. And without which we've read, 
No man will see the Lord. Let's go before this holy God today. And I want to remind you to keep this in front of your consciousness. Living a holy life is not a burden. Difficult at times, sure. But it produces great fruit. One of which is, we read, love, joy, and peace. A sense of peace. Hey, how are you doing today, Pastor Ray? Well, I'm at peace. I heard you have a lot of problems. I do, but I'm still at peace. We have to just allow the Lord to impart to us this distinction, which is what holiness means, that we are actually distinct from the spirit of this world. So, Father, help us today. Only you know, once again, the hearts of people. Only you know what men and women here, watching by way of the live stream, listening by way of radio, only you know what they have to put away, and only you know what things they need to put on, what they need to do, what they need to stop doing. But speak to all of us. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, we see this recurrent theme. Be holy because I'm holy. Be separate and be distinct. And again, help us to have your word wash away the misconceptions of a holy life. How burdensome it is and troublesome it is. and It's just the opposite. It brings a simplicity and a cleanness. It brings a calmness and assurance. It takes away confusion, heals our hurts. It's good for us. Lord, today help us to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. And help us to have a love that's not hypocritical. When we come into a fellowship like this, say, oh, I love you, brother. Oh, I love you, sister. When we really don't mean that. Help us to mean it. Help us to mean it. I think, in my mind, God, only your spirit can put that into our hearts because by nature we don't love anybody but ourselves. We don't even love our spouses and children and grandchildren as much as we love ourselves. In my mind, that's the truth. Help us, God, to love you and love one another. For lovers of God and everyone that is born of God loves and has known God. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. We see the signs of the times and we know that you're coming. We read our history, just a little history over the last 200 years in Christianity and see the church has been steadily moving away from the book, steadily moving away from the written words of God himself. Help us to not be in that number. Help us today. Just quickly, while your heads are bowed, I asked you if you come in with problems and we're going to lay those problems down in front of the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. But this is not like fishing where you cast and then you reel it back in again. When you cast it, let it go. Cut the line. Say, God, my job, my family, or whatever, it's in your hands now. That God will work it out. He will work it out for good. Romans 8, 28. All right, so your problem. How many of you know there's something you really got to lay down, you know, something you got to stop practicing that's displeasing to God? Can I just see your hands? It's between you and God anyway, so it has nothing to do with me. Okay, so I'm being challenged. I told you Wednesday night, as I'm studying the book, after 45 years, I'm saying, oh, I got so much further to go. Wow. But I'm glad because that means I haven't exhausted the book yet. I don't think I ever will. So let's do those two things right now and we'll finish. Take your problem and say, God, I'm casting this on you. And it does not mean that when you go home or you go to work tomorrow, whatever it is, that's immediately going to be gone. But God can give you peace in the midst of it while he's taking care of it. All right, so let's take that problem. Whatever it is, a problem is plural. Give that one, that person to God. Give that situation to God, the economy, your job, uh, 
you know, sickness and disease, we pray for that too. And just say, Lord, it's yours. I'm not going to worry about this. I'm not going to fret. Psalm 37. I'm not going to fret about this. I'm not going to fret about evil men. I'm very bold when I say this here too. For some of you, politics has usurped your understanding of the scriptures. Throw it down. You can still vote. And you can still vote your conscience. But if you're looking for deliverance from flesh and blood, you have become an idolater. Simple. I just have simple. There's no deliverance coming from any man except when Christ appears. And if anything, if anything, we are the salt of the earth. Throw it down. It's an idol. Throw it down. Now, whatever it is that's been besetting you, you know, it could be anything, you know. You say, Lord, I just confess this. It's wrong, the way I've been thinking and talking and acting and behaving. And it's wrong. I turn from it. So we give you these things today, Lord. We give you these problems that we're facing. We give you these uh, sins that we're committing, uh, both what we do and what we don't do that we're supposed to be doing. Help us, God. Give us more grace. As we pray for America for a third great awakening, help us to be part of it. Help us there to be right there, in lockstep with brothers and sisters around this country, praying the same way we are today. Help us, God, to put it away for good. And take our knife and put it right through it. Sacrifice it to you. We give you praise and we give you glory. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Can you stand with me this morning? If you're like me, I've often wondered sometimes, it goes through my mind, you know, here's a brother in the Lord, a sister in the Lord. And I wonder what God had in mind when he saved that person. Boy, I tell you, you know, they're a real headache. But uh, that's only God speaking to me saying, don't you love him? I get it. I get it. See, some of you are easy to love. Some of you are not so easy. Some people feel that way about me. My obligation is to love the brethren. How about we join hands and rededicate ourselves to this proposition that loving God and loving a neighbor are basically two sides of the same coin. One is greater, of course, but we don't want to accent that to the exclusion of the other. So, Father, next Sunday we'll be able to stay for a while after service and have some fellowship and food and bless the fellowship. Just cause us and help us to continue to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength, and to love each other. We give you all the praise, give you all the glory, and give you all the honor today, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen with me? Amen.